I want to add to Professor uh, Rinderman uh, that, uh, I mean, I very much uh, understand uh, statistics and so on, but on the subject of sexual assault by the immigrants to the northern countries, I want to give, uh, I mean, I do not uh, at all think this is all right or anything to do, of course, but I want to give uh, two little explanations, not at all to defend, but to a little bit understand, because um, body language is very different in different countries. And uh, body language, even in America and Europe, is different. I mean, how you act in a bar is different in Europe. How you act in a bar in America is different. So body language sets different messages. When I was in German school in Istanbul, we had German teachers being appointed by the German government to teach in Istanbul. And they would come and we would laugh about them because they get gas for their car and uh, the gas guy is kind of nice to them and serves and they would really smile and wave at the guy, you know. And when they really smile and wave at the guy, then the guy, the Turkish guy gets the message, ah, she is interested in me. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> if we would uh, be the person who is getting gas, we would say, okay, thank you and uh, goodbye or uh, God bless you and then get into your car and drive away. You know, so body language is very different. And um, when I first started to study in Switzerland, uh, I learned that uh, you just, uh, if Italian street workers whistle after you, you don't act so angry and stern like you would <laughs> act here and walk through like stone, but uh, you would kind of smile and keep walking. No, or if a co-student asks you to please meet you in a bar and give you the studying papers, then it would not necessarily need, he want, uh, need to mean that he wants to go to bed with you, you know, in the following. So, so what you understand from uh, body language is different. So when these guys, maybe it's an approach, First of all, I am very much against admitting everybody and their uncle into the countries where I have to go through extreme uh, measures for getting a visa. But uh, I would not, uh, I don't think it's a good idea to let everybody in. But when you let everybody in, you have to make them know that this is not their country. This is a different culture and they are guests I mean, it's a strange approach to try to make out of Syrians all of a sudden Germans. No, you can't make uh, Syrians uh, to Germans. You also cannot make me to a total German. You know, although I had a German nanny, I went to German schools and so on. In, in your core, I would be uh, closer to the Greeks <laughs> than I would be in my feelings and... and uh, uh, history, I would be closer to, the, to Greek or other Mediterranean people than I would be uh, to the Germans. So these are some points, plus uh, uh, the elites, which my husband uh, talked in his books or in his brochure about, if 
the people's own elites are missing in that country, then they cannot be uh, treated the way they are supposed to be treated. For example, here, if you go out on the street, you see many girls in very short shorts. These are Turkish and Muslim girls. And many guys on the streets who are Turkish and Muslim guys, and they are not handpicked to come to Bodrum, but they are just some, some kids who are vacationing here. So why are these guys not attacking these girls? Because uh, their own elites would keep them from doing that. You know? I am constantly working with, um, with very simple men. And these are my daily working colleagues. And what I do is I act like a man. I think mentally I, I'm also a man. You know, and if your body language exudes, okay, I'm one of you and I'm the authority, that's very different than you giggle around and, uh, and uh, <laughs> jump around and so on and so forth, because this thing uh, invites, I mean, because it's a different uh, body language, people to just, okay, come in and join us and uh, we are best of all friends, you know, and, uh, and we are open for everything. So, um, also, women in Europe or America, in America even more, tend to get drunk in public. Which, uh, for example, here you would not necessarily drink, yeah, but not get drunk uh, and act drunk, like in America or sometimes in Europe. So that also gives different signals. So these guys, when they come, if they want to come, and they, when they come, they are guests and they have first to be not just language, it's not a matter of language, it's a matter of also physical body signals you send out. You know? And since they are the guests, they have to adapt and they have, of course, to learn the different body language. And of course, they also, I mean, maybe the German elites have to learn how to treat them, which means, I mean, my brother, you don't act like this in this country. You know, I was um, going when I was very young, I was also in Istanbul wearing a very mini, mini skirt and riding public transportation often. And um, usually nothing would happen. But if anybody would come too close in a bus or something, I would look for stronger guys around, you know, like kind of properish guys. and really turn around and say, but this is not proper what you do, mister. <laughs> and then, of course, the other guys are getting very manly and then just attack the guy, you know. So this was my method with, uh, for dealing uh, with it back then. So um, and I had one more point. Ah, this was for Professor Stone. and. Um, about what changed in Turkey, one has to make the distinction, I think, or we experienced, or I experienced, uh, there is a difference, a large difference between Wahhabi Islam and which has now the power and the money, or the power of money, and uh, the Ottoman way of applied Islam. And uh, f for the people who don't know, I'm the grand-granddaughter, this I keep repeating all the time, I'm the grand-granddaughter of Oshayul Islam, 
which means he was the highest religious authority in the whole Ottoman Empire. During the time of Sultan Abdulaziz, it was Hassan Fehmi Efendi who was twice had the job, and he had to seal the decrees for even the Sultan being able to go to war or peace or whatever. So I am raised in this kind of family, at least one of my father's side was this. And his grandson, he sent to Vienna to uh, study medicine during Misesian times. I mean, so, and, and to French school, and he would send a girl with him, and then he would go together to the French school in his younger age, and they would make sure that he would not make the cross, you know. I mean, she, she, her job was to hold his hand when he was going to make the cross, because it was a Catholic school, like you were mentioning. So, uh, Turkish society, if you ask people, 99% of the Turkish people, there are almost no atheists. Uh, now it is a little bit coming with the young people who are disappointed with everything. But otherwise, everybody would claim they, are, they believe in God and they are, uh, their religion is Islam. But half of the population would definitely reject what is going on now. Uh, I mean, the, the Islam applied by, by right now or trying to be promoted right now by the government is a type of Islam which is brought in via Saudi Arabia and their, way, uh, their uh, kind of Islam, you know? Because before there was no problem of Islam, you never heard uh, any big problem. There were many, many Ottoman wars, but it was not wars between Christianity and Islam. I mean, you say the Turks in front of Vienna. You don't say the Islamists in front of Vienna. So there is a difference. And also, um, uh, and we experienced that um, really during the last years, like Professor Stone was saying, this, um, uh, that society parted is actually uh, really promoted promoted by money. For example, if you, if you put on a headscarf, your husband gets a better job. So if you are a simple person, what do you want to do, you know? I mean, your husband gets then a, a job with, with a cleaning company or the helper of the helper of the cleaning company or, or a gardener of whatever of a government company. So it's really, they pay money and they even take on tours. Uh, the Balkans, they also very much infused. It was all Bektashi order, was very strong in the Balkans. Uh, and they also set their way of, of schools. They, they promoted, even in Germany, because if you have the money, you can do that. And uh, so everything changed a lot, and it's two different kinds of Islamic views which are uh, right now existing in Turkey. And I think at least the second half, <laughs> uh, the Ottoman way of Islam is, is uh, reconcilable with, uh, with a lot of tolerance because when I grew up, uh, I grew up in an extremely tolerant environment. I mean, we showed a lot of respect to our Christian neighbors. They would visit us, we would visit them. Uh, we would play around. I mean, it was uh, 
very, very different. Uh, and also f with the headscarf people, we would also um, be very peaceful together. I mean, this we noticed together that they would walk arm in arm, and now there is a separation. And even Hans says, now I'm looking on the street uh, to a veiled woman in a hostile way, because this hostility got really promoted. For uh, what for? For reasons of money, for reasons of politics. I mean, the reason of politics is mostly money, or always money, like uh, Rothbard was saying, follow the money. And uh, so the, I wanted, as an insider and uh, a Turkish person, I wanted to make this addition. It took a while. I'm <laughs> Thank you for your attention. When I summarize, you gave two uh, explanations why immigrants behave in a different way. The first explanation is that there's a difference in body language, and the second explanation was that there are missing um, authoritative persons who control the behavior of the young men. And this is a very important... Uh, um, Get closer uh, to the microphone. Uh, this? Okay, this is a very important uh, clue because uh, Ideally, people, persons would not need other persons to control them, but they control themselves. Microphone, sorry. Mm -hmm. Ideally, people are not controlled by others, but they control themselves. And this is the, this, this is the idea of Protestantism, that the individual consciousness, individual Gewissen, how do you say in English, Gewissen? Conscience. Conscience. The individual conscience controls you. And this is also the idea, for example, of psychoanalysis, that the autonomous individual controls in a rational way his, her own behavior. And there's a difference, I think. And this was becoming more successful in uh, European tradition and less successful in Arabian, especially in Arabian countries, that people are more controlled by outside forces and not by uh, internalization of, um, of norms which can be um, uh, justified. I think yeah, another, another um, important reason is, is the role of the woman, or what, what, um, how you appreciate or how you see women in a society. And there's also a large differences, difference across centuries that even in Middle Age, in Europe, the woman was an uh, important person. Look, look in the literature, look, for example, Nibelunglied. This is an old German, German, German um, how do you say, tale, something like this. Um, and there you see that the men are making courtship for a woman. Courtship. And ma making courtship means I value where, oh, I get really, I get here, what do I say? Gänsehaut, you are making, you are honoring the woman. You are so much honoring the woman. And this is very different, I think, in Arabian countries. Countries, For example, for the poly, polygamy, polygamy. So you can have many uh, women and you do not, usually you do not make courtship. Um, you have to make a, you have to make a negotiation with the parents or the parents make a negotiation and then the marriage or the 
the, um, they will, will, will become a couple. And, I, and this is a very important difference. And, and the next question would be why we have this difference? And this is difficult to answer. Maybe it can be traced back to Rome or Greece or maybe back to uh, Christianity. Um, this I will, I will forward this question to the historians. I guess it's my turn. I've got the mic. Uh, <laughs> um, I noticed that the Syrians and the Egyptian men treat their women brutally also, and yet they have the same culture. So the difference in culture might explain something, but it couldn't explain everything. The question I have is for uh, Tony. Do you want to comment on Thomas Oz and the myth of mental illness, uh, apropos of your talk? Uh, yes, I, uh, I knew uh, Thomas Sass uh, very slightly, and a, a mutual friend of ours uh, um, asked me to dinner once with him. And I thought that he was a wonderful polemicist. I liked him very much as a man. Uh, he had many good uh, things to say, but unfortunately he sometimes went too far. So we had a discussion. I had been on duty in the prison the night before. And I had seen, I'd been asked to see a man who had stripped himself naked and was trying to plug himself into the lights. And he was obviously mad. You couldn't understand what he was saying. Uh, the most likely expert, he was psychotic. The most likely explanation was that he had taken some drug of some kind or other. But you couldn't prove it. It was impossible. So I said, and what I did was I forced him to take a tranquilizer. I, we physically held him down, I gave him a tranquilizer, and the next day he was perfectly all right. And I said to Sass, what would you do in that situation? Would you just let this man, you'd say there's no mental illness, nothing wrong with this man, uh, because you can't prove it by any physical means at that time, it was impossible to do it, would you just let him get on with it? And his what he said to me, I thought, was a bit of an evasion. He just said, well, you were there as an agent of the state. And I thought that that was a kind of evasion, saying, Are you, do you mean to say that a man in that situation should not receive medical attention? So I, I admired him. He was a wonderful writer. Uh, a lot of what he said was true, uh, but I think he... Uh, exaggerated and, and, and like many people take, took a good idea uh, uh, rather too far. Okay, can I ask um, General uh, Schulze Ronhoff a question? Do you think the Second World War was deliberately set up and, and created, let's say, in 1919? Oh, okay. Do you think the uh, Second World War was deliberately generated, deliberately set up, maybe in 1919? Um, and it was, you know, they were expecting it to happen. They wanted it to happen at some point in the future. And if you do, who do you think deliberately set up the Second World War and, and why did they do it? The Second World War hadn't been deliberately initiated in 1919. They, all the winner states thought they could produce forever. 
And some of the far-sighted politicians of those times had seen what a disaster was there prepared. But the uh, leading politicians, mainly the hate monger Clemenceau, were out of rage. I believe he didn't know what he, what a disaster he prepared. So, but the First War and the Second World War are for me an entity. It, it was the sake of hegemony and priority in Europe and hegemony in economy. And this was not solved at the end of the First World War. There was a Second World War necessary. I've been asked during the break whether I believe that it would have given a Second World War if the French, British, Americans, Poles were more cautious before. Uh, I cannot answer this question, but I believe that the question about hegemony in Europe has caused a Second World War earlier or later, with or without Hitler. Um, I have a question for uh, Herr Professor Dr. Heiner Rindermann. Um, you mentioned that Australia was a unique sort of successful uh, model of uh, immigration because the immigrants were actually you know, raising the IQ, maybe lowering down the crime, probably coming from China with an IQ average of 105, so that would help. Uh, however, it seems to me that China could spare sending 24 million people to Australia overnight, and that may not necessarily be in the interest of Australia. So that brings up questions of cultural um, compatibility, uh, which were raised uh, earlier. And uh, we have this uh, best uh, movie of the 70s in Switzerland called Die Schweizermacher. Uh, so they would test for cultural compatibility by asking what are the two cheeses that go into the fondue recipe. So that kind of thing. Um, however, maybe we can do something a little bit more scientific nowadays. I noticed that you cited uh, an article by Romain Varchiac and uh, one of his uh, co-authors, Pauletto, I think. Um, they have this measure of genetic distance uh, whereby you can actually measure the genetic distance between a proposed immigrant and uh, the average of the country. So then maybe a solution would be to have a fee for immigration, you know, of $50,000, proportionate linearly to the genetic distance between the immigrant and the average of the country. Uh, would you think it's a good idea? You said that, or you suggested that we can use genetic distance and uh, more related people are, the less problematic will be any immigration for the immigrants and for the uh, natives. Yes, this maybe can be done, but much easier. You, you can t uh, take uh, uh, language, you can take uh, um, education, you can take uh, religion, and the more similar people are in these traits, the easier will be the future living of these groups um, together. Hmm? Yeah, but he mentioned genetic differences. Yes, he mentioned genetic differences, but, uh, but 
I, I have not said that, it, that this will not work. I have said it's easier to take a language or um, uh, uh, religion or education and similarity in these variables. And I think uh, politically this is much easier and easier to communicate than use a genetic measure. But, but now only scientifically uh, spoken, this would be, um, I think, I think this w it would work somewhat, but uh, if we come back to uh, European history, um, for example, um, the people who are genetically closest to the Germans are the, the Czech, um, Czech people, and there have been in the past some, some war history between Czech and, and, and German people, or even between Germany and Austria. So there could be different interests and, and different languages, different culture, who, which can create some tensions. Um, me? Oh. I, I have a question for General Schultz Ronhoff, and I will endeavor to speak slowly and simply. I accept that Germany in the 1930s had entirely legitimate foreign policy aims. It was entirely legitimate for Germany to rearm. It was entirely legitimate for Germany to bring about the Anschluss with Austria. And it was entirely legitimate for Germany to seek some kind of protective status over its minorities in West Prussia and in the Sudetenland. And it was entirely legitimate for Germany to seek a long-term solution within Central and Eastern Europe that would produce overall German hegemony. I also accept that the conduct of the other great powers in the 1930s was often very foolish. I think in particular of the British government's Polish guarantee in March 1939. However, having made those concessions, I still cannot, I'll rephrase this as it's a complex sentence, I still see that the main cause of the Second World War was the fact that Hitler, the German leader, was ultimately a gambler. Instead of seeking Germany's legitimate foreign policy interests in the way that Bismarck would have done, or perhaps in the way that Mr. Putin is currently doing with regard to Russia, he wanted to achieve 15 or 20 years work in 10 years. He was a gambler. He thought that he would win and win and win and win, and he paid no attention to the consequences of his actions. And so, in that sense, although the origins of the Second World War must be discussed in an impartial manner, especially nearly 80 years after the event, I, I still think that prime responsibility for the Second World War must lie with Hitler. He had a choice. In August 1939, 
he could have said to himself, I don't want a war with Britain, and so with regard to Poland, I will wait. Poland is frightened of Soviet Russia. If I am friendly to Poland in five years, in seven years, maybe in ten years, the Poles will be in my harem. I have no need to risk a war with Britain. I will simply wait. And yet, instead of waiting, Hitler invaded Poland. And so I, I think that in spite of all that can be said against the foolishness and rashness of the other great powers, um, the, the chief blame for the outbreak of the Second World War must still lie with the German leadership. I did not I did not deny that, but what Hitler proposed in 1939 was uh, legitimated, uh, but his great fault was the occupation of Czechia. That was superfluous, but he did it, and that gave the other European states the casus belli. And after that, they could declare war. And to get into the war, they made the Danzig problem the big problem, the stone where Hitler had to jump or to stop. Danzig was a free state with 97% German population, which several times had demanded to be, re to be reunified with Germany. And there, were, there was a certain but little progress in the German-Polish negotiations about the reunification. Because Danzig didn't belong to Poland, but Poland had there some rights. And Hitler was prepared to guarantee most of these rights. This was a very slow progress of coming nearer and nearer. And then the French side and the British side at the same time torpedoed these slow negotiation process. And then uh, we, the Germans, recognized that the British side played for time. And that they uh, and we know it from documentations in British papers that they discussed when we are capable to come to the 1st of September without the outbreak of war. Hitler can't start the war, he must wait a year because of the weather conditions. The weather frogs of the Western Allies and the weather frogs of Germany had the same prediction. When they wait uh, beyond the 1st of September, the weather conditions will change in Poland so that the Air Force can't fly, that the army can't march in, in uh, a rainy 
and uh, swampy street conditions in Poland. Therefore, it was crucial, crucial to reach the 1st of September with a negotiated solution or with war from German perspective and from British perspective to reach the 1st September with uh, uh, consuming time without a decision. And Hitler realized that and then of the negotiations, he four times uh, postponed his decision. And then he met the decision, calculating that this could be, and this was his hope, a local war, a local decision. He feared and did not foresee that it could be a worldwide war. And days until Great Britain and France brought their colonies into the war and then this local conflict was not only a German, Polish, French and British, it was with India and South Africa and many other states and then we had a world war. I believe Hitler didn't envisage a world war. Hitler in 1939 had enormous prestige within Germany. He had been Germany's most successful leader since Bismarck, and his achievements until the summer of 1939 far exceeded the most extreme expectations of any German statesman before him after 1919. If Hitler had said in August 1939, we will wait. We will not be humiliated. We will simply wait. We will not go to war over this issue. We will wait because time is on our side. There would have been no war. It may be that the British government wanted a war with Germany. Such things may be. But it takes two sides to make a war. And Hitler decided in September, he decided in August 1939 that the war would start here. He was the man who pressed the button. He didn't have to press the button because he had enough prestige to tell his people, we wait, we do nothing. And yet he still pressed it. And that is a very important consideration. If he had decided not to press the button, there is no way that a war could have been forced on him. Uh, you are theoretically right. But there is the psychological side. Three weeks before, or a month before, there was the Polish Danzig customs uh, quarrel about the arming of the Polish customs service. And when Hitler urged the president of the Danzig Senate to give way Polish press and British press uh, wrote, look, Hitler gave way. You must show him the teeth and then he will not act. He is a coward. And the British, um, sorry, the British ambassador in Berlin 
wrote to London, do not repeat that. You force him to act. If the press writes in England and Poland that Hitler is weak. Well, the first thing I'd say is, you know, I think arguing about who did what when in the circumstances of the summer of 1939 is really almost neither here nor there. Uh, people who were alive at the time just said to me, we just thought the war had broken out in July 1939, and what calculation when didn't really make any difference. The, the chief thing was absolutely the, the uh, Hitler's decision to, to occupy um, Prague in uh, was it the 15th, 14th, 15th of March, 1939. And he'd, uh, uh, the, the key thing about that was, um, would you encourage the Slovaks, the Slovak, uh, Slovak independence movement? And people were uh, running between Vienna and Bratislava, saying yes, prodding the Slovaks into declaring independence and threatening them that if they didn't, they would be handed over to Hungary. <coughs> uh, and eventually the Slovaks were, were, well, Hitler was very good at building up tension. And if finally get in the hope that his enemies would do the wrong thing. And the Czechs did respond stupidly to the Slovak crisis, which eventually did lead to Hitler's getting an excuse to go in to take over Bohemia. Yes, absolutely the classic mistake. But then there's another dimension to all this, that everybody, but everybody, was terrified of the air war. You know, in 1939, when the war broke out, the British made provision for a million places in lunatic asylums. And similar arrangements were made about evacuation of children and places in hospitals. And the idea was that the, you know, the bombers would come over. And, and Hitler had, after all, said, you know, in his, uh, in his way, I'll build bombers, I'll build bombers, I'll build bombers, and I'll smash my enemies into the ground. As it turned out, he didn't, didn't really build that many bombers and built the wrong sort. Um, but the others were not really to know that. And that's the background. I think myself that the uh, AJP Taylor makes us makes uh, a remark somewhere that what what was really behind the British response in 1939, in September 39, was simply that the the chain of radar stations along the Channel and the and the and the East Coast, the protection against German bombers, in other words, that that chain of radar stations was completed. So they had a very good idea that when they were actually attacked, they would win. And the air war was, I think, was in, in everybody's mind when, when all this is going on. And I don't think they're thinking straight. Obviously, the, the guarantee to Poland was mad. It was also mad to deal with the Russians. Uh, you know, to go saying, yes, we'll make an alliance with you, but then we'll have to ask the Romanians and the Poles whether you can cross their territory or not. I mean, in the end, this was an ins invitation to the Russians to do a deal with um, to a, do a deal with Hitler, which again, the British and French never expected. I, th it's, I mean, it's, it sounds like collective madness, 
But you know, if you don't mind if I go on for a bit on this subject, see, when when I mean, I completely agree about these statesmen in Versailles in 1919. You looking back at it, it's it's uh, you know, what are they thinking of? Uh, uh, and um, I mean, I think the worst the worst thing they did was to expect the Germans to pay reparations until some notional date. I think it was 1984, uh, because of some decision taken by Bettmann Holweg and the Kaiser in 1914. And that was meant to ruin Germany. It then didn't ruin Germany, of course, but it gave the Germans the idea that they were ruined. And if you want to, uh, if you want to set up a functioning German Germany with which you can cooperate, you just don't treat them that way. But it wasn't really till after the failure of the French attempt, the French tried to make the Germans pay up by force, occupying the Ruhr. And then the Weimar Republic collapsed into big inflation and there are communists in Saxony and Hitler in Bavaria, until finally, having, as has been said, exhausted all other possibilities, they finally see the right way forward, which is the Americans come in, give the place some money, stabilize the currency, Schacht brings in his reforms, the great coalition establishes Weimar democracy, and so it goes on. But then they go and do it again. 1929, uh, the world economic crisis, which, uh, would the Americans use their gold? No. Would the French help the British? No. Um, so the mark goes down. And then the world goes down. Hitler comes in. I, mean, I, I see that situation as you know, so many, so many false coins in the air. You know, I think one reason. Uh, look, I'm I'm talking where you should be. Um, one reason that people people assigned so many. Um, minorities to countries that they didn't want to be in, or by and large, was because they genuinely thought that the League of Nations would give minority rights and that the, uh, the minorities would not be able to complain about being unable to use their language or whatever. And the assumption was that the League of Nations would have that kind of authority. And uh, it thought so too. Now, uh, the answer to that on the 1st of September is this. Um, announcement of uh, Nazi-Soviet pact. The uh, German army invades Poland. Um, there is a plenary session of the League of Nations. It decides to ignore the outbreak of the Second World War. And the chairman, who was some idiotic Dutch clown, said that the plenary uh, assembly should go around, to, should discuss the standardization of level crossings in Europe, not League of Nations. <coughs> it's, it's such a topsy-turvy world. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but my, my real point is the, the air war. No one saw quite how that was going to work out. And they all went a bit mad.
there is a final point, which, which it's, uh, it's very difficult to put any kind of weight on this. But <coughs> people had said about Hitler that the, uh, the absurdities of the, of the business with the Jews, that that would get easier as time went by. In fact, German, Jews immigrated into Germany up to 1937 because there was an economic recovery. And then comes uh, the Kristallnacht uh, in November 1938, when uh, moved tens of thousands of, more maybe, of highly educated, civilized people, Jews, reached, uh, uh, reached um, England uh, much more than America. About a thousand of them came to Turkey, by the way, headed by Einstein. And they were, when I came here, they were remembered by the students of their students, who were extraordinary people. And you know, if people like that arrive, school teachers from Cologne, um, utter, you know, people who were nothing but profit to England in varying, varying ways, uh, George Weidenfeld, people like that, you know, that had a terrific effect. That what is going on in Germany? I guess that is a parallel story which did not uh, inflame the Second World War. In all European and uh, especially Eastern European nations, we had a pro-Jewish fraction and an anti-Jewish fraction. That had you had in, the, uh, in Poland, in White Russia, in Ukraine, uh, even in England and many other countries. And I believe, I firmly believe that none of the nations who declared war on Germany did it because of the, Jew, of the Jewish question. None of them intended to save the Jews. They all had economic reasons. What happened to the Jews in the world is most regrettable, but uh, when you count down the countries of Middle and Eastern Europe, even in the United States of America, you had so many uh, anti-Jewish feelings that you couldn't have mobilized the population of these countries with the Jewish question for joining the war against Germany. Um, I also have a question for Mr. Schultz-Ronhoff. Um, if I understood your thesis, it, it is that um, Germany triggered the war not, because, not out of any inherent expansionary aggressive uh, um, uh, motivation, but as a result of the uh, manifest injustices of the Versailles Treaty and then the scheming and, uh, and machinations of the Poles, the British, and the, uh, the French, and, and in the background, the Americans. And uh, the war broke out as a result of, uh, of these, was triggered by the Germans as a result of these causes, not as a result of uh, an inherent expansionary uh, uh, aggressive policy of the Nazi, uh, of the Nazi regime. Um, that being the case, can you explain why it was that uh, Hitler abrogated the, uh, and you also absolved the Soviet Union from, uh, from any 
a patrimonial responsibility for the, for the First World War. Um, so if the Soviet Union had no, uh, um, was not behind any of these causes, why is it that Hitler abrogated the Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, uh, Treaty and initiated uh, the invasion of Russia? I, I'm sure that, that, that some, some, there were some violations of that treaty by Stalin. I mean, Stalin was no saint himself, but there was nothing of a magnitude there that could, that could possibly have justified um, an operation as huge as Barbarossa uh, uh, if, it not, if it not a premeditated uh, uh, effort at expansionary uh, aggressive warfare. I must find my first point. I don't find the first point of your assertion. Uh, why did he attack the Soviet Union? Uh, at first, after the French campaign and the, uh, the Polish campaign and the French campaign and the expulsion of the British forces from the continent, uh, the government of the Third Reich several times tried to conclude peace with France and to come into negotiations with the English government. And both didn't succeed. And when Hitler couldn't find a solution with the British side, he knew that in the length of the time, the British Empire from Southern Europe, from anywhere else, could prolong the war. And he knew that as soon as the potential enemy in the rear of Germany, namely the Soviet Union, would be beaten, the British Empire would close, uh, would uh, um, close, yeah, uh, a peace with Germany. And in those times, the estimation of the Red Army was very low in Europe. Even specialists in many countries thought that when the huge Red Army couldn't uh, gain a victory over the tiny Finland, when they have murdered their military and politi political elite, the marshals, generals, uh, uh, and the party leaders, the uh, Red Army is without potential military leaders. The estimation of many specialists were this is a giant on, on earthen feet, on weak feet, and the Soviet Union is beatable. This was a miscalculation, as we know today. But the world was not sure that this would be reality. And so Hitler tried what many advisors uh, kept for reasonable, and this was his fault. But at the time, what we know now, the Soviet Union had a uh, uh, march in the aggressive positions for wage and uh, offensive against Germany. This was not known to Germany when we invaded in Russia. 
because we had no knowledge about the uh, kind of uh, deploy of Russian deployment. But when the German army invaded, they saw that this was a purely aggressive deployment and not a defensive deployment. An aggressive deployment and a defensive deployment are different um, as a red traffic ample and a green traffic ample. They are, uh, they are clearly distinguishable. So, uh, when Hitler hadn't invaded in Russia, the Soviet Union had invaded three weeks later in Germany. That is the truth. Hi, could I just change the topic back to uh, what Gurchin says? Um, I think I, I am an immigrant myself. Um, I was, you know, I travel, I follow my husband, and I go to uh, many countries where body language, uh, as I think uh, it is the, the three of the base uh, gesture, signaling, and, and all that. And it is very, um, uh, very useful sometimes, and, and sometimes it can be very surprising. We just moved to Abu Dhabi a month ago, and then I was just in a petrol station because petrol stations, they are owned by the state, and they haven't quite built them in the right places. So when you go, you have to queue half an hour to get petrol, and if you're not careful, you might just run out of petrol until you can get to the next petrol station. Especially, I get lost a lot on the highway. Um, but at this petrol station, um, I did not proceed to squeeze my car through to get to my spot, um, gaining 30 seconds, and, and the guy next to me, he was Arabic and my car was not. Um, blackly tainted like like the locals could be allowed uh, so he did this to me like like the arab would do in the sense probably hurry up you know that but to me that was very offensive uh, like i couldn't understand and i just did this back to him in the sense what do you mean you know um, I, I didn't understand you um so um then um he he looked as if I had offended him. And then uh, later my husband wisely advised me that I am the guest of, of this country and I should learn how they use their body language and not get myself in trouble because then they would deport me and then he will lose his job and then, you know, that would not be very good. Um, <laughs> but um, it is true that uh, be, being a young girl, you, you are, um, if you're not advised, then I think you're ill-advised. Because after all, um, we, we should think about protecting ourselves first and foremost before we enlist brothers and husbands and other strong male members of the public to come to our rescue. So um, yeah, I totally agree that um, men and women, when they travel abroad to, to different cultures, should just, you know, for the first few days, look around and see what people do and copy them. Because that's easy to learn. The language is difficult to learn, but 
sign language is quite easy. Uh, or, or in Italy, people whistle at you. And, and then my first reaction was, oh, I'm really flattered. But, um, but then realized I was told they do that to a lot of women, so you know, there's nothing special about you. Uh, don't get too, you know, too excited about your personal beauty. Um, but yeah, so, so that is a, a lighter subject that I think is well worth uh, bringing up. Um, give it back to you. Don't worry, I will immediately hand it to you. Uh, also, between very close cultures, there are great differences, and one does not notice that. For example, you go to America, people ask you, how are you today? As a European, you think, I mean, what do you mean by how, how am I today? It's none of your business, how am I today? <laughs> because today means for a European, it's specific. And what, how I feel specifically today is none of your business, you know. But in America, the standard answer is great, you know. <laughs> Something an American would call awesome, my husband will call, you can live with it. <laughs> you can. So if my husband says you can live with it, then he's from northern Germany, so it's a great compliment. You know? <laughs> so there are slight differences. You will never, for example, the Swiss people think um, that German people have a very annoying way of talking. And they don't like the Germans. They are that close. So these things should not be overlooked. And of course, the further apart people are, I mean, this is not for making things little, what you are talking about in your statistics, but there are really lots of subtle differences which one has to learn. And with teaching, I did not, I, I meant uh, teaching and not controlling people, like you said, controlling. In, uh, no, it's more teaching through analogies which they understand. Because if you teach simple men, you have to first understand the way they are thinking and then come with analogies which, are, uh, which will make sense in their minds. And that way only you can uh, teach them something, you know. But uh, this only somebody can do who understands their culture or comes from their culture. Otherwise, it's impossible and this is a, uh, difficult work only can be done by one to one. <laughs> and uh, no, uh, one one thing more. Uh, my stepson visited us in Austria, and we had nice dinner together, f all four at the same table. And he was talking. He's American, so he his pitch of voice was American. Some guy came from. Uh, right across the restaurant, and it's a restaurant which we frequent for weeks and weeks, he came and scolded him and said, watch your talk, don't raise your voice that way. <laughs> you know? But in America, it's, it's very normal to talk with a high voice. And uh, so it's a, it's a very subtle thing and uh, one should not overlook. I promised you the mic. Returning the Q&A back to the panel, and specifically Dr. Rinderman, you made mention of compulsory immigration 
on certain subjects and the use of ships or even the use of force if necessary. So what program would you suggest on that and would you consider that a physical removal service? <laughs> so to speak. Germany, Germany is just doing this, but it's very expensive to to f force the immigrate people. Uh, um, I read la last week uh, statistics. Bavaria, for example, calculates 55,000 euro for one forced immigration of to Africa or to Arabian country, and we, we are just doing this. We put them in the airplane, and they put some policemen and. And then they bring, then they bring the, take the airplane, and the airplane will fly to the country. The problem is that many countries do not, or one problem is that many countries do not receive, want, do not want to receive the, their own people, and then we have to do something, maybe use some money, developmental aid, and if this is all not working, maybe send them to other countries, or maybe use force. And this is not my idea. The idea of of other persons I documented in my presentation. And how is it done in concrete terms in the practice? This is a question of police and, and so on, not a question of science. Maybe, maybe you can run a business in this, in this field, huh? <laughs> I, I have just one short question to Anthony Daniels. Um, Peter Hitchens, with whom you may be vaguely familiar, uh, says that dyslexia doesn't exist and you can teach everyone who is allegedly dyslexic to read if you just teach them properly using the synthetic phonics method. Do you agree with that? Not exactly, uh, but of course what happens with the diagnoses that do probably really exist, for example, attention deficit disorder, anyone who's seen a real child with that uh, disorder will not forget it in a short time. But because there are no biological markers, they have this tendency to spread over the entire population. And obviously it's a very convenient label for failure to teach children. It is certainly true that you can teach the vast majority of children to read even in the most disadvantaged circumstances if you use the right methods. And of course it's a perfect excuse, the existence of this uh, condition is a perfect excuse for failing to do so even after uh, the expenditure of $100,000 on every child's education. Now that's a kind of modern miracle. but. Uh, but that it does exist is, is probably true, but in a, a much smaller number than alleged. <laughs>